Good morning, everybody. Glad we're all together. Uh, we are going to continue learning about hope. That's what we're going to be pressing into uh, for the next season as we get into Lent uh, and we prepare even for Easter. Uh, this, this pressing into hope, one of the things that we've said is the primary kind of undercurrent question of our day is not so much, is God real? Uh, is he believable? Those sorts of things. The real primary question is quite distant from that. It's more close to home, it's about, is there anything that could change me, change our world? Is there anything essentially to hope in? Uh, and that's really the foundational question of our time, of our world. Uh, then, you know, as you get into that, you start asking questions around, you know, the origins of the universe and those sorts of things. But primarily, the question that even approaches us in our daily life is, is there anything to hope for? Uh, the last time we had a sermon, I know it's been like three odd weeks, but we talked about how hope uh, operates in the world and how you could get hope or understand hope. So we talked about how you would look at primary source, like the, the Jesus himself and what he says and how he lived. We also talked about how you would examine primary sources. This is me being you know, clever, hopefully you noticed. Uh, but primary sources, which talks about those who wrote about him and the eyewitnesses and the people that testified about him. And all of that we said, you know, the very least thing you can do in your life is see if this hope of Jesus is reasonable. Uh, is, it, is it more than likely true? Is it worth putting uh, the answer to those questions in Jesus of who can change the world? Jesus can change the world. Who can change me? Jesus can change me. And so that's what we're gonna do over these next several weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, we're gonna look at Jesus primarily through the gospel of Mark uh, and these different interactions that he has with skeptics and cynics and people who don't believe and, and then people who come to belief. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. Today, we're looking at this core message that he proclaimed. In the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, uh, the writer, John Mark, gives us this introduction that's basically, this is what Jesus said all the time everywhere. And so we should look into the words that he said. Uh, and so that's what we're talking about. The message that Jesus proclaimed, is that message even hopeful itself? And so we're going to read Mark 1, 14 to 17. And this is what it says, Mark 1, 14 to 17. It says, after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and you and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. This is God's word. The good news about Jesus. So, so it's kind of the hum, if you can imagine, a soundtrack underneath all of human history is this reality that things are broken. That's kind of the hum, the music beneath it all. It's something that we don't have to be convinced in, that the world works uh, and, and it doesn't work. Uh, we, Miral and I, over two nights, watched the movie Oppenheimer. Uh, really great. I don't know how people watch that movie and Barbie in the same, you know, like, who did that? Y'all are crazy. 
One, that's like seven hours of movie time. But also, they're just so distinct. But even both of those movies, that Barbie Heimer moment, really displayed that the world is really broken and nobody had to be convinced of it. The jokes, the setting, the sound, all of it has this underlying understanding that the world is breaking in on itself. The relationships between genders, relationships with war, with technology, with science, it's all pretty sad and tragic. Uh, even there's a moment in that movie that Miral and I saw where they split the atom for the first time in Germany and instantly the scientists are like, you can make a big bomb with this. That that kind of discovery of seeing into the very like finite areas of the universe, the first implication is we could destroy something with this. Uh, theology, the Bible describes this as sin. Uh, not just, you know, ah, oh, things don't quite work right, we have a malfunction, but sin, the, the reality of humanity, death, evil, the fact that everything that exists in this world is somehow touched or tainted by the reality that we want to be God and we will destroy other people. Uh, Kendrick Lamar, the L.A.-based prophet, said this in one of his songs when he's talking about just how hard life is. He said, every day I try to escape the realities of this world. And, he's, and, he, and he says that within the context of drinking and alcohol and guns and violence and travel and all of these things and pursuing the dream because every day he's trying to escape the realities of the world. Uh, I think we start life optimistically. You know, we have some babies in the room. Life is great. You know, there's a person picks me up and feeds me. It's so optimistic, right? Life is going to be good until life isn't good. You know, most researchers will say, when you're four years old, you've realized life isn't going to be good. That person that holds you actually isn't perfect. Uh, you begin to realize that things are broken a little bit. And, and what we do, when faced with this, you know, crushing weight of the world's not perfect, we think, well, I'll fix this. I can fix this world. We figure out how to adapt and make people good and manage other people's emotions and all of the survival, those sorts of things, until we realize that we can't fix the world, even just the small world that we see around us. And then we think, well, somebody else will come and fix this world. Somebody else is going to come and fix my world. There's some other thing that can be added in, and all will be mended until we realize that... Oh, these other people that are trying, they're really not mending the world. You know, that's one of the tragedies of like social policy is everything that we try to do creates all of these unintended consequences, right? It's like, oh, let's pass this law. It's totally gonna take care of the family. Oh, it actually doesn't. It causes this whole other new set of problems. Let's do this to fix education. Oh, shoot, we didn't realize that that would mean that kids wouldn't be afraid of getting sent home from school and they're gonna beat each other up now. We thought we were doing a nice thing, right? Y'all, some of y'all know, Jordan's into that, she knows. We start life optimistically, we think we can fix it, we think somebody else can, and eventually we shrug and just say, let's make the most of this life because no one's coming. It's that really terrible phrase, it is what it is, which is just like the resignation of, this is, this is a dumpster fire maybe. And that's kind of the baseline belief that I think exists in the world. This is all there are, there are. We're like children who are born in a refugee camp in a nation that doesn't want the refugees there. 
and we're bound and we begin to assume there is no home for us, no one will welcome us, no person out there will care for us to be free, much less actually make us feel free. Uh, Maya Angelou wrote this in the, the, the poem to begin her really great uh, autobiographical novel. She says, the cage bird sings with fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. We are in this world caged. We're wounded. We're both the victim and the victimizer. And what do we long for? We long for freedom. Uh, that's, this is the story, not just of humanity, but also if you zoom in, just like the story of Israel, or if you thought, oh, what's the story that Jesus grew up in? Uh, the story of Israel is this really optimistic, you know, wonderful thing. God takes Abraham and Sarah. He says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through your marriage. I mean, I've done several weddings, and I've never had the guts to say, through your marriage, the whole world will be blessed. You know, I've done lots of baby dedications, and I've never once thought and said out loud, hey, you know, Jeff and Allie, through these babies you've had, the whole entire universe will be blessed. But that's what God says to Abraham and Sarah. And that's the, I mean, what optimistic core value they have as a, as a family, as an entity. Uh, over the years, their whole tribe grows. They do have uh, children who have lots of children who have lots of children. They kind of become people who uh, are well-blessed, uh, even, uh, you know, dis like looked on as people with lots of cows and cattle and all of these possessions, and then they get brought into famine and they find refuge in Egypt and become slaves for hundreds of years. And even then, there's this thought of, I thought we we're supposed to be blessed people. And just when it felt like there's no way to believe or hope anymore, God redeems them out of Egypt, saves them out of slavery. And you might think, oh, it's like the Maya Angelou moment. Like the caged bird sings for freedom. The people of Israel cry out for freedom. They're released from that. And then they go into the desert. They rebel against God. They continually do that. They eventually create a kingdom. The kingdom's pretty good. They have a, a bad king at first, but then the second king, he's stellar. He's like so great. That's David. Uh, but he's also at the end, not so great like most of us. Uh, it's, it would just be really great for some of us to grow up and grow old and be good people the whole time. But David shows us, you know, that, that's not super in the cards. And then after that, there's these different kings that come about. The descendants, the kingdom splits up. They fight against each other. They make, uh, sometimes they listen to the words of God. Sometimes they listen to the prophets. But others, most likely, they don't. And then they kind of decide they're going to worship the other things that their neighbors worship. They fall into this trap of uh, doing injustice to people instead of caring for the vulnerable, instead of following the commands of God, they don't. And then they end up in exile and scattered. Uh, the, the people get taken out of exile are the ones who are the artists, the smart people, the educated, you know, like us. You know, we would have been just like drawn out into the middle of nowhere in shackles to some other kingdom where they're gonna make us do stuff to build up their culture. And left behind were people who were thought of as not even good enough, not even worthy enough, which is also some of us too. That would, the society would look and be like, you're not even good enough to like be carried across the desert. 
And that's kind of the, the story for hundreds of years. The people of, of exile eventually come back. They have a, a micro, mini kind of revival. They try to build up their walls. The, the, the people weep over the new temple because it's just a shadow of the old temple. And they get conquered over and over again by different kingdoms. All of the famous conquerors of the world, uh, they got conquered by. They got to, you know, the, the Israelites could say, this is what it's like under the Persians. This is what it's like under the Syrians. This is what it's like under the Greeks and the Romans. They just knew it all. Even in, if you fast forward in the future, this is what it's like under the British. And there was this moment uh, in Jesus's, the, the context when Jesus was born and lived in which all of the people began to just kind of assume no one is going to come and rescue us. I think that's really important for us to understand. That is the assumption of the world. That's the assumption of the people that Jesus spent his life around, that the world is broken, we are broken, we get opportunities, we fail those opportunities, we harm and we get victimized and all of those things. That's just how it is. It was for Jesus, it was for his neighbors. That's what they just assumed. And so when, when these, these are words are powerful for Mark, when he says, just in this kind of off-the-cuff thing, Jesus came into Galilee. I mean, those are words that we skip over and we think, ah, oh, that's just, you know, Mark setting the, the stage. You know, you have to give stage directions to actors. Jesus kind of comes in. But it's pretty uh, a phenomenal reality because his name actually means the Lord saves sinners. It's, it's why it's, it's such an offensive name, you know, that, that if you're just actually out there proclaiming something besides generic God, but specifically Jesus, one of the reasons that that's incredibly offensive is because it has this implication that we are in need of saving and he is the one who saves sinners. But also what that means is when these words say that the, this, the saving one from sin, all the death, all the brokenness that we described has actually come in. And so it's a turning of its head of this belief that no one is ever going to come. I just need to survive and make do. And then suddenly there's this reality of the one who saves us from that brokenness has come. So there's this moment in this, in this passage, but it's describing a moment in history in which the, the whole thought of no one will come and rescue us is over forever. And it is now suddenly Jesus has come, the rescuer has come, and that's the true reality for all. It's pretty phenomenal. And what he's saying too within this is that uh, God incarnate has come into the world. This kind of incarnation reality, because the, what he says is he's proclaiming good news about God. Good news about God. And this word proclaiming just means that it's what he said all the time. Everywhere he went, he was saying this. You know, uh, the way that people have stump speeches. I think it's, pr I used to talk about this in terms of politicians who say the same thing at every campaign stop, but now our primary candidates can't like remember what they said, and they change it every time. But there was a day when politicians just go around and gave a stump speech. This is Jesus' stump speech. That's what that means. It also is him saying something really profound that we should understand, that it is good news about God. The gospel is about God, which I think we often 
think the gospel, the message of Christianity, is good news for us, about us, right? It's like this whole thing of sinners saved by Jesus, that's about us being saved, right? We're the center of that story. Someone's trying to get free. The cage bird sings for freedom over there. Uh, (laughs) But Jesus is proclaiming the good news about who God is. This word is a stolen word. Christianity stole all these words from the the Roman Greek culture. This word, euangelion, gospel, is essentially a word that would be used by people uh, traveling from the front lines of a battle or from a war who would come through village after village and they would gather around and say, let me proclaim the gospel to you. And the people would gather around and they would share news that changed their life fundamentally forever. Like the king or the emperor has won this battle and this is what it means for you. We're no longer at war. All of society is now at peace and these are the treasures that we're gonna receive now. That's the kind of news and that was how this word was used throughout history. You can read uh, ancient texts describing uh, Alexander the Great's conquest, and he had many, many evangelists who would travel the whole empire and proclaim the gospel of Alexander the Great. But what Jesus is saying here is he's coming into your town to proclaim the gospel of God, the good news about God, which is, this is what he says. He says, the time has come, which is really great. The time is fulfilled. There's no more waiting We wait and wait and wait and wait. The the beginning of the good news about God is there's no more waiting. There's no more waiting. Then he says the kingdom of God has come near. These words are he's come so close you can touch it. it. It's also this, it's really beautiful language of it's reaching out to you and you're reaching out to it. Kind of like um, that one song that they sing in Boston, you know. Sweet Caroline, touching me, touching you. That's what he's describing. He's describing this reality that the kingdom, the rule of God, where everything is right and good, the kingdom of God, I think sometimes we have images of crusaders or something in the, in the Middle East, but he's describing the rule and the reign of God where he gets everything that he wanted just as he intended it to where the rule is grace and mercy and forgiveness and justice, and God is over those things, and he gets that in this world. And so what he is saying is, the time has come. There's no more waiting. The rule and the reign of God, where his kingdom of love, justice, and mercy is now here, so close that you can touch it. He's making these statements really about himself. The good news about God is that I'm here. He's saying, the good news about God is that the time is fulfilled. I've come into this world to be with you. It's not about a battle that's happened far away. It's not about a historical reality that's long, long ago. It's about the presence of God in Jesus standing in this earth saying, I'm going to get what I want out of this world. So often we think that God is so feeble, that Jesus is just a nice, sweet man from thousands of years ago. But his claim was, I'm going to get exactly what I want 
out of this world because I came into it and I will restore it and I will redeem it and it will not look like brokenness and mess. It will not end in nuclear holocaust. It will not end in political divisions. It will end in my kingdom. That's what he's saying. Which is a a pretty profound statement that the good news about God is that I'm here. Pretty gutsy. Pretty gutsy. It's this mystery. The, the first miracle of the gospel is the incarnation of God here with us. His claim is that the one who formed and shaped the universe, who, who was the first cause of an ever-extending cosmos, is here on earth making all broken things right. That's the mystery and the claim. That's the, even the, the historical reality of Jesus, that he was a person who preached, who taught, that people marveled at, that was so wise, that was such a good teacher, and what he firmly believed about himself was, I created the universe and I'm repairing it in this small, dusty area of Palestine called Galilee. It says, the kingdom of God is fulfilled, it's at hand, My name itself is the one who takes away sin from sinners, and I'm here telling you the good news about God. The good news about God is uh, that Jesus has come to rescue. To be rescued is to be taken from a place of peril and then be put in a place of safety and security. Often we think that we are in a place that could, could go either way with our existence, The rescue of Jesus is it won't go either way. You are safe and secure. The good news about Jesus is that he defeated sin, evil, and death for us. That's the good news about God and his glory. The thing that is just gonna be sung about forever and ever is that he defeated sin, death, and evil. That all of the the destruction of this world, the thing that we fear the most, the thing that we do to one another is swallowed up and redeemed in Jesus, and the outcome is we're free. So maybe you just need to hear that, that Jesus is going from town to town saying, you are free, not in bondage. Jesus took on pain and suffering, which means we are healed. All these times we carry these different ailments within us. I've been coughing for like three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, there's some of us here. It's now clear, the stuff that comes out, so I think that's good. Yeah. And so we think, ah, this is, and you know, I'm getting to the point where there's different parts of my body that just don't feel quite right. I hung out with my friends in Austin last weekend, just a college friends, and we're all so old now. We're like taking seltzers and we're, you know, like, I don't know, I can't, you know, we're like, I can't drink wine after 8 p.m. because I won't be able to, we have all these rules because our bodies are decaying. And we know that one day we'll be sick. But because Jesus came and took on pain, death, and he says the kingdom of God is near, we will all be healed. Jesus is victorious in life. That he comes out of the grave means that we are victorious in life, truly alive. The good news of God is that you are loved, that he comes to us, that because of that we belong. All I'm really trying to say is Jesus changes everything. That's his claim. That's his message. And he says, how do you respond to that, you might think? 
I mean, that's a short sermon. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. That's the good news. How are we supposed to respond to that? He says, so you should repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. I think repentance we get really scared of, but actually repentance is easy. We repent all the time. Uh, we res- we, you know, he's saying you need to respond to the outstretched arm, outstretched arm of a savior who stands before you, change what you believe about what's gonna fix the world and believe in me. Go from thinking that your career or some sort of you know, conglomerate of career, finances, friendships, physical health, emotional health, some sort of collection of all of those things in a place that's really cool with cool clothes and cool drinks. If you could gather all that together, we think that's what's gonna save me. Jesus is saying, no, repent, turn away from those things and instead believe that I'm the only one that can save and restore you. That's repentance. But repentance uh, is a word that's super out of style, but we do this all the time, just so you know. You do repentance constantly. We change our mind and our actions and our hopes as often as you know, we change our clothes and our shoes. Generation after generation, year by year, day to day, whole societies repent and change. We try new things. We think that they work, they don't work, so we stop trying them, we start a new thing. Uh, we, we leave behind old versions of hope for new versions of hope. Uh, in our kind of progressive, so- social, secular kind of worldview, it tells us that the, our Western world is constantly evolving. You know, like if you ever hear people say, I can't believe they used to say that, we would never say that now, right? When we say, oh, you couldn't make the office today, like... Steve Carell's office. Can't make that today. What we're saying is we've all repented as a society. We no longer want funny things, right? (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) Things that we thought were completely wrong before, we now think are right. Things that we thought were completely wrong, we now think are right. Like those ads that we see of people like new mothers and like, you should smoke cigarettes, it's good for your baby, right? We're like, no, we repent of that as society, don't we? Mostly. Our, we're certain that things were good, we now consider evil, and the things that we were certain were evil, we now consider good. That's simply repentance, changing your mind and your life about what you think is best, about who you think is best, and what you think will save your life. Repentance is just changing your mind about those things. In other words, repentance is just the practice of altering our hopes. We do this uh, more closely, not just on the cosmic scale, but the personal scale. You know, we have doctors that tell us you should not wear a mask. Do you all remember that? In the beginning, there were doctors on the internet being like, don't wear a mask. Then they're like, you have to wear a mask. Now they're like, I don't know if you should wear a mask, right? We do this in relationships. We fall in love, we think this person is really great, then we think they're toxic, and we break up with them. Why? Because they're not really great. They're toxic. We start a new career that we've even dedicated years and years of our life to. We went to school, we get into it, we start doing it, and we're like, actually, I don't really like doing this. I'm gonna start a new thing, right? A new career. That's repentance. While these moments fill our life, what Jesus is saying here is actually comprehensive. He is saying, no, a 
a holistic change in hope. Not about nutrition or habits or new ways to live or the right way to order your life. He's saying, no, no, you have to comprehensively hope that my kingdom is so close that you could touch it and it will rule and reign over you. It will make you well on the inside. It will change the world on the outside. And he cites himself as, I'm the one that brings good news. So that's repentance. Can you alter your hope? But it always goes with belief. Can you actually trust and put confidence in the reality of Jesus? I truly wonder how much we believe in the transformative power of Jesus. Not like the idea of Jesus or the philosophy of Jesus or even that like, yeah, he was a real person. I think sometimes we believe in the practicality of Jesus. Uh, There's this really brilliant Cambridge professor named Tom Holland, not (laughs) Spider-Man, different one. He wrote this book called Dominion. It's really thick. It's essentially about, and I've just read the summary and heard lectures, but it's essentially this claim that the Western world is best if it's a Christian world. And Tom Holland is an atheist, but he's subscribing to the practical realities of Christianity. And that's essentially, I think, we're like, how could he do that? But that's essentially what a lot of us do. They say, the practicality of Jesus is really strong. I think it's the best way to live. It's the smartest. I like that whole thing of love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds really great. Also, Jesus is friendly. Uh, That sounds really good. You can turn most, you know, therapies into Jesus language. Like, that sounds good too. But what Jesus is saying is not this trust in my process or trust in my program. He's saying, believe in this good news about God. Believe in this good news about God. When Jesus says, repent and believe, he's challenging our functional hopes and our beliefs. They can't just live up here in this nice, like, of course I believe in Jesus and his kingdom. He's talking about a holistic one where it impacts your daily life. To follow Jesus, we must learn to believe him completely with every longing we have, with every grief we have, with every dream we have. Uh, Miroslav Volf, a survivor of uh, Soviet persecution because he was a Christian, he's now a preeminent theologian at Yale Divinity. He actually was at USC for a long time, so go all you Trojans. Zero. (laughs) But he was one. Uh, He was here in the 80s. He said... The main temptation for Christians is not to reject God outright, but to embrace God as something secondary. The main temptation for you, for your life, is not to reject God outright, but to embrace God as something secondary. I once had an incredibly kind person in our community who told me as we had coffee Uh, He said, I don't much believe in this stuff anymore, like this God stuff, but I do want the spiritual practices. So he had gone to seminary. He like led a homeless shelter. I mean, he was really great. And after exploring spirituality on his own, he came back and said, I kind of want the practices, but obviously I don't want God. 
And that is the temptation for us to hear the call of Jesus, the the reality of him's coming into this world, the kingdom of God is near and close and restores all things. We're like, that's so good. I would love for that to be secondary. And I would actually like to, you know, dabble in other things. Sometimes we want wholeness without the redemption of Jesus, without the reality of his life, death, and resurrection. We want an abundant life, but we don't want to trust in his resurrection. And so that is the main temptation, is to repent and to believe. But the church, for all centuries, has all come together, for, like in this way on Sundays and in communities and at meals and all of those things. We've come together and we have said, we are a people of belief. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a person of belief. So simple, right? To be a people of belief, but it's powerful. A people of belief expects chains to be broken. A people of belief expects miracles in people's hearts and in their bodies. A people of belief filters all things through the lens of what Jesus loves, how he has loved, how he has rescued, what he will rescue. Like all things get filtered through that lens. A people of belief expect that our greatest good, like your greatest good, will be found in him alone. A people of belief cry out to the heavens in distress, God be with me. That's a people of belief. People of belief encourage one another to remain steadfast in your hope. We live in a world of cynicism, of misinformation, of gaslighting, of judgment, of constant distraction. You know, will you stand against the wind and be a person who says, no, I will constantly, continually repent and believe in the hope of Jesus. That's really how you could sum up your whole life. Uh, What a wonderful obituary for you, if I could write it now for all of you. It's a little morbid. I recognize that now. <clears throat> but often when you, obituaries, and one day we'll all be more of the age where we read the obituaries. My grandmother has a bunch, you know, in her house. But uh, obituaries typically follow the like, this is what this person did for their career. This is their job. This is what they accomplished, and this is where they lived. And these are the groups that they were part of, you know, the Rotary Club, the whatever. Uh, Sometimes there's a little joke about their sports team that they really enjoyed and loved, and there's some kind of definition around who they were married to, who's still alive, who has died already. And that's the obituary, essentially. If you're really famous and you do really, really good things, maybe they'll put a little blurb about that at the top. Or if you've done a really, really bad thing, they'll put a blurb up there at the top, right? But what if the whole summation of your life when it comes to an end will be about this person believed the kingdom of God and lived their whole life in accordance with that belief. They did their whole career underneath that heading that the kingdom of God is close. They did their whole parenting underneath that hope that God restores and rescues. They did their whole marriage underneath the foundational belief that God redeems broken things. What if that was your statement that hung over your life? Instead of Brad really thought 
he could have it all. Or he really tried to have his finances in order, but he never quite got there, right? The gospel changes what we believe about life, pain, and death, and rescue. And so I call us to be a people of hope, even amidst darkest hours and struggles and sin and death, even when it seems like the world is not going to turn out really great. May we remember that Jesus walked into neighborhoods and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your truth that you came and entered the world and you looked so far into the future and you, uh, and you desired to bring good news about yourself to the world. I pray for growing belief amongst us uh, that you would, yeah, restore us even from cynicism or from doubt that you would give us a, a hope uh, that we'd have confidence. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.